with 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. This is Murderous Minors, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. Episode number four, Catherine and Curtis Jones and John Engel. Part one, Catherine and Curtis Jones. The story of Catherine and Curtis Jones is a perplexing one that spanned 18 years and left many onlookers with a sinking feeling in their stomach that perhaps the system may have failed these children. This brother and sister committed their crime at just 13 and 12 years of age in 1998, having shot to death their father's 29-year-old girlfriend, Sonia Nicole Spates, a beloved elementary school teacher's aide who devoted her career to helping children with emotional difficulties learn and thrive, just as her mother had done before her. Let me just tell you now that the kids take a plea and are sentenced without giving any testimony in 1999. At the time, it was widely reported that jealousy was the motivating factor. Authorities, attorneys, and the press all reported that the kids felt that Sonia Spates had moved in on their territory. An in-depth newspaper investigation, along with the review of files by attorneys seeking clemency in 2009, involved the release of Department of Family Services reports and the story went from foggy to just slightly more clear. But to try and understand the circumstances leading to the tragic murder of Sonia Bates, a loving mother of two daughters herself, it is necessary to go back to the beginning. Catherine and Curtis Jones are the children of Stacy Parks and Curtis Jones Sr., who met when she was a 17-year-old working at a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Palo Alto, California. He was 23 years old, and it was 1984. Stacy's parents did nothing to hide the fact that they disapproved of their white daughter dating a black man, but after six months of seeing each other, the pair were expecting their first child, Catherine. She would be born premature, a bit over three pounds, and her mother Stacy was convinced that a tear in her uterus sustained during a domestic violence incident caused the early birth. The following May of 1986, Curtis Jr. would be born, and by 1989, Stacy was fleeing her abusive husband without her children 
just months after the two officially married. She pawned a gold chain to buy a one-way bus ticket to her mother's place in Kansas. Not only would her mother not allow her biracial children to live with them, but Curtis had also made it abundantly clear that she could go, but the children would be staying with him. Around this time in 1989, Curtis Jones Sr. would find himself not only a newly single father, but also arrested for second-degree murder. The children would go stay in Alabama with his mother while he handled the charges, which would eventually be dropped to a misdemeanor and deemed self-defense. When Curtis returns with the kids to their Port St. John, Florida home, he would hook up with an unidentified family member who had just spent six years in prison for armed robbery. In 1993, this very same family member would be convicted of having an inappropriate relationship with a 14-year-old girl, the same year that Stacy Parks would drive to Florida from Kansas, pick her kids up from school, take them back with her, and would lead to her being arrested for custodial interference. The charges would later be dropped after the children were returned. The family member came to live with Curtis and his two children. In 1994, Curtis Jr. would report to his mother while visiting her in Kansas that the family member shared his bed with him and alleged that he would touch him inappropriately. Stacy Parks reports these allegations to authorities, marking the first of three occasions that the Sheriff's Department and Family Services would investigate abuse claims at this home. But after speaking with Curtis Jr., who was about eight years old at the time, Authorities say that he recants the claims and only mentioned it in hopes that he would either get to live with his mother in Kansas full-time or that the relative would be forced to move out of his family's home. Evidently, they did not delve deeper into why he might want this and instead, they closed the investigation. In 1996, Curtis Jr. would show up at a sheriff's department with a swollen and bruised eye prompting the second investigation, which would also be closed with no action being taken. In late September 1998, the situation reached a critical point. Catherine ran away from home right around the same time that one of her teachers at Space Coast Middle School reported suspicions of sexual abuse. This begins the third and most serious investigation of all. Catherine was interviewed extensively but went on to deny any claims of sexual abuse and returned home to her dad's house. Department of Family Services did find indicators of abuse at this point and Curtis Sr. was advised that the family member should not be living with his children due to his sex offender status. But the investigation is closed with offers for counseling and parental education denied. Just a few days later, the family member would corner 13-year-old Catherine while she is helpless in the shower, 
later leaving 50 cents on the toilet seat when he was done emotionally abusing and tormenting her. This event, she says, was the catalyst that turned her mind toward murder. Her father did not believe her, and she felt that he was even taking his relative's side when she thought he would be ready to kill him. While walking to the bus stop one morning, Curtis would tell his big sister that he believed her because these things also happened to him. Catherine said that when she heard her little brother was also being victimized and abused, the murder plot blossomed and they vowed to make it come to fruition using the 9mm handgun that their father kept in the house. Although the ammo was kept separately, they knew where that was too. In the end, the official plan would be to kill the family member for abusing them, to kill their father for not believing them, and to kill their father's girlfriend allegedly for not protecting them. By January 6, 1999, they were ready to seize their opportunity when their dad left the house to run a few errands. By now, Catherine is 13 and Curtis is 12, and by all accounts, they actually have a favorable relationship with their dad's living girlfriend. She has two daughters who are several years younger than the Jones kids that live in Alabama with their grandma. The girls had lived with their mom in the Jones family as recently as the prior year and considered the kids their siblings. Sonia's estranged husband, the girl's father, was serving a 20-year federal prison sentence in Alabama and would not be permitted to attend his wife's funeral after her murder. Once their father leaves to run his errands, Sonia is left alone with the kids, who know that the family member will be returning to the house later that day. They're sitting at the dining room table putting together a puzzle when Curtis removes the gun from his lap and fires. He drops the gun, hysterical, and Catherine then picks it up and fires as well. Of the nine shots fired, four of them strike Sonia, killing her. The children have fired errant bullets all around the room. They then move their victim's body to the bathtub, attempt to clean up her blood using bleach, and put the towels into the washing machine. They are now frantic, and they run from their house across the street where they tell a few friends and neighbors what they've done. Before anyone can calm them down enough to get them into a house and call the police, they take off running into some small woods behind their home and spend the entire night underneath a pile of blankets back there. The police would apprehend them the next morning, which seems like a rather long time for both police and their father to go without locating them, especially since they were right behind their house. But when questioned, they start off with the story that the shooting was accidental. Police don't accept this eagerly, mainly because evidence indicated that the kids went to great lengths to try and clean up after themselves, wiping the scene down with bleach, 
and attempting to wash the towels they used. They also moved Sonia's body to the bathtub so she wouldn't be immediately visible to anyone that entered the house. Eventually, they explained that they had planned to kill Sonia's Bates but leave it at that. Neither reveals the true plan to kill the abuser along with their father, nor do they reveal any details about the abuse. Detectives already knew that they had visited the family multiple times with family services, but they also were aware of the fact that though indicators of abuse were present, no indisputable evidence of sexual abuse had been found. Catherine would later explain in her 2009 interview that each time she recanted her story, it had been under duress and threats from her father. She had been told that a favorable resolution in this situation would be the kids' removal from the home and likely into foster care. Having already been forced into separation from her mother, she did not find this a comforting solution. At the time of her interview, detectives note that Catherine has an apparent lack of remorse. The grand jury would go on to indict Catherine and Curtis on charges of first-degree murder as adults, making Curtis the youngest child in the country at the time to be charged as such. Had they been sentenced within the juvenile system, state law would have allowed a maximum 36-month sentence. Attorneys worked diligently to construct an appeal that would allow the children to avoid the mandatory life sentence in adult prison, and they would go on to offer pleas for second-degree murder, carrying with them 18 years behind bars and lifetime probation. So there would be no trial, no testimony from the children, their father, sheriff's investigators, or Department of Family Services representatives. No evidence would be presented to show whether Sonia Spates even knew or acknowledged that accusations of abuse had ever even been made. The allegations of abuse against the unnamed family member would not come to light in open court and extenuating factors and circumstances would not be highlighted and examined. The victim's family would not have the opportunity to testify as to the person Sonia Nicole Spates was, and explain that she did indeed care for and protect those children. None of these hallmarks of a trial would take place. So through a trial, it would have been possible that some of the weight of responsibility for this tragedy could have been shifted to all the proper shoulders. Regardless, prior abuse could not be used as a first-degree murder defense, and the mandatory sentence was life if convicted. To give these kids any hope of a decent life at some point in the future— the plea was their best bet. Catherine and Curtis would accept the deals and plead guilty, 
to second-degree murder on August 6, 1999, and begin 18-year prison sentences in adult prisons as a 13- and a 12-year-old. Florida State University College of Law professor Paolo Anino worked diligently in favor of legislation, which could have resulted in clemency for the kids. It came close to passing, but it never did. Curtis Jones' single disciplinary infraction was a 24-hour-long escape following damage to the fence at his facility after a hurricane in 2008. This added 318 days to his sentence. He would grow up to become an ordained minister while incarcerated and would be released from South Bay Correctional Institution on July 28, 2015, with a lifetime probation requirement. He has never given an interview or spoken to the press. Catherine Jones became pen pals with an active duty sailor in the Navy in 2009 after he wrote to her after reading the investigative journalism piece. They eventually married in 2013 and he planned to retire when she was released from prison. She was released from Lowell Correctional Institution in Ocala, Florida on August 1, 2015 at the age of 30. In an interview from her new home in Kansas in late November of the same year, she reported that she was already actively involved with the justice organization's ICANN, Incarcerated Children Advocacy Network, as well as CFSY, the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, just 100 days after her release. She reported that the marriage to her pen pal had not worked out, but that she was looking forward to that Thanksgiving of 2015 to see her father and brother for the first time since her release. Although they have not spoken with or been apologized to by Catherine or Curtis, Sonia Nicole Spate's daughters had quite a bit to say about their mother's murder in 2015. Her oldest daughter, who was nine when her mother was killed, recently graduated from the University of Alabama, knowing her mother would be proud as she was a huge proponent of education. She keeps her mother's memory alive by releasing balloons on her birthday with her own two children, who never got to meet their grandmother. Sonia's younger daughter, who was eight, often listens to her mother's favorite music and visits her grave often. Of course, they have thoughts about how they wish the past had gone. They acknowledge the allegations of abuse, but ponder why their mother had to die when it's unclear what, if any, part she played in the abuse scenario of Catherine and Curtis Jones. Her oldest daughter wishes that the Department of Family Services has done more to help the kids and that they would have considered leaving them motherless, but expresses that, although she has not seen them show any remorse for taking their mother's life, her faith has allowed her to forgive them.
And now for a word from some of my favorite podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Hey guys, do you like mysteries and urban legends? Do you like creepy stories and unsolved true crime? Then join us every Tuesday and Saturday at Mysteries and Urban Legends and get to the bottom of weird urban legends and spooky mysteries. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from Corpus Delicti Podcast, here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too, with a touch of lightheartedness and a dash of southern charm. We cover compelling cases and crack them open for you. Serial killers, hitmen, historical hallmarks, we've got it all and bring you new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter too. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday. Part 2. John Engel. At the impressionable and formative age of two years old, John Engel was adopted from the Philippines by Tom and Mary Elizabeth Reinschmidt Engel, joining a four-year-old sister who had come to their Colorado family in the same fashion. John and his sister Grace had escaped unbelievably abusive situations when they were essentially rescued by the Engels. Mary was a talented musician who taught music at John's middle school for a time, gave private piano, violin, and flute lessons, sang at church, and was a member of the orchestra in Boulder, Colorado. Tom could be found working on the IBM supercomputer at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Grace enjoyed the flute, while John was considered one of the most talented pupils Mary ever taught piano to, even at the age of three. Neighbors would later recall the sounds of him playing filling the neighborhood when everyone had their windows open. Even though this family appeared to be off to a successful beginning, by the time John was 14 in 1999, his 16-year-old sister Grace would be living out of state, receiving psychiatric treatment after trying to stab their mother Mary in the summer of 1997. During the first semester of the 1999-2000 school year, it is reported that as an 8th grader at Twin Peaks Charter Academy, John began to have a full-blown infatuation with one of his teachers, to the point that he would record their conversations to listen to later. She would betray his trust in his opinion by alerting the administration and his parents to some dark and disturbing writings he had submitted. John's assignments began to include depictions of violence and self-harm, and a classmate reported that John repeatedly spoke of suicide that semester. This classmate even stated that John had mentioned that he would have to kill his entire family before committing suicide because he couldn't bear to leave them grief-stricken. His parents knew that their son was suffering from an emotional disturbance and were beginning to take action. But given the situation with their daughter, they were very reluctant to go to such extreme lengths with their other child. On the morning of December 11, 1999, Mary and Tom would go jogging, leaving John at home with Mary's mom, Catherine Reinschmidt, who was visiting from Austin, Texas. Mary would arrive back at the house first, only to be chased down by her son and stabbed to death. There was no way she did not see her elderly mother on the kitchen floor, having already been hit with a hammer. 
Blood evidence would show that Mary made a brave attempt to run for her life, but was eventually overpowered by her son. Within a few minutes of the attack, Tom Engel returned after completing his run. Once he was inside the garage, John immediately attacked him from behind. He was struck in the back of the head by the hammer, and John attempted to stab him before Tom was able to disarm his 14-year-old completely. Eighth grader John Engel was arrested and charged as an adult with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder, along with aggravated assault. Investigators would find a list of 11 names, all his intended victims, including himself. He would spend the weeks following his arrest on suicide watch in a mental health facility, and it would take months to determine his mental competency. He was being represented by Carrie Lackland, public defender, and would plead not guilty by reason of insanity. John would ultimately accept a plea deal that required him to serve seven years with the Division of Youth Corrections for Mary's killing, followed by 32 years for killing his grandmother, to begin at age 21 and be carried out in adult prison. At the end of his juvenile sentence, his plea allowed for John to petition the court to reconsider the adult prison portion of his sentence, and in October of 2007, he does just that, requesting a hearing for either a reduced jail sentence or a community-based correctional sentence. Carrie Lacklin had the opportunity to present evidence favorable to John Engel in front of a judge in hopes of a reduction to his looming 32-year sentence. Even the Boulder County District Attorney at the time was in favor of some type of early release for John. Over the course of the nine-hour hearing, the Engel family's concerns over John's continuing danger to the community were heard, and Carrie Lacklin presented evidence and expert testimony attesting to the fact that John Engel, now 21, committed the murders during a time of uncontrolled bipolar disorder so severe that he was certain he was under the influence of Satan. Once in custody, he was placed on the proper medications and therapy schedule to get his illness under control around 2000 to 2001. Public defender Lacklin pretty much said that John Engel would be released from prison someday, whether it be in 32 years or sooner, based on this hearing. His argument was that John's severe mental illness would not be treated in prison and society would be better off receiving a medicated, well-monitored version of John as compared to an institutionalized 50-something-year-old whose bipolar disorder had pretty much gone unchecked for the previous three decades. The adult prison system simply did not have the resources to keep John Engel mentally stable, but would have to release him eventually regardless. In early April of 2007, the Boulder County Board of Community Corrections voted to supply the funds necessary for John Engel to be housed elsewhere, and District Court Judge Carol Glowinski would go on to determine that the 32-year sentence could be served out in the community, beginning at a halfway house, with GPS monitoring by ankle bracelet, followed by intensive supervision and lifetime probation. Judge Glowinski stated, It is such a temptation to just do what the victims want because I want to relieve their suffering, but that's not my job. I just really 
deeply, respectfully disagree with their view of this case regarding the family's disagreement with John's release. His father and surviving victim, Tom Engels, said that he was afraid for his life and that, I love him, but I detest what he did. I don't trust my son. He has demonstrated he can deceive everyone around him while planning to act out anger at an opportune time. In 2004, while John was already properly medicated and in the company of his psychiatric team, he met with his father Tom for the first time since the murders took place. The pair had been writing letters back and forth for some time before they took this step, and Tom thought for sure that John was ready to go forward with healing and the steps toward reconciliation within his family. But the meeting was tense, and John was combative from the get-go. His father said that he didn't express any sorrow for his actions, only in terms of how his own life was affected. He mentioned that the intended victims on his confiscated kill list deserved what he was going to give them, including the middle school teacher who expressed concern over his writings. He told his father that they were stupid for adopting him. Tom would bring this up during the 2007 proceedings, to which the judge would determine that he simply wasn't emotionally ready for the meeting at that time. John Engel spoke too. How do you say you're sorry? All I know is that I'm sorry and that I will spend the rest of my life trying to make amends. I believe justice is more than a location. It's learning to live with the shame. I'm a stronger and better person because of what I've learned over the past eight years. Regardless of today's decision, I will continue to grow. He said his goals on the outside were going to school, studying math and music, and perhaps time spent somewhere working in the justice system to aid incarcerated juveniles. His sister, two years older, said that her mother and grandmother deserved better. I feel this is so unjust, she said, and I will be looking behind my back every day. So in July of 2008, a now 22-year-old John Engel moved into his new residence at the halfway house following a 60-day transitional program completed at the Boulder County Jail. Shockingly, during this time, his longtime lawyer and advocate, public defender Carrie Lacklin, took his own life, leaving John understandably distraught. After an orientation at the halfway house, he would room with three other men, but the overall length of his stay was unknown. At some point in the future, he would be moved to more transitional housing and then eventually into his own place, where he would continue to be intensely monitored and supervised for the rest of his 32-year sentence, then on probation for life. The son and brother of the victims stated that his nephew was pretty messed up, he hoped that the murders were a one-time occurrence and that he expected him to do something to violate his probation. It would only take three months for that prophecy to fulfill itself, with John Engel being taken into custody in October 2008 for violating probation. In December of that year, probation officials requested that the judge give John a second chance, but rescinded the request once it was learned that John had repeatedly violated a no-contact order while being held in the jail. 
The violations included allowing the battery in his ankle monitor to die, having an unauthorized cell phone, using the internet, and having relationships with two women, causing him to have visited the women's corridor, the halfway house where one of them lived, and also led to his meeting them at unauthorized and prohibited locations over 20 times. Court documents revealed that John Engel said he risked everything to meet these women because he needed to be valued and have the closeness of a relationship. Prosecutors said he became secretive, manipulative, and did whatever he had to do to spend time with whom they called a 28-year-old felon. In April 2009, just nine months after getting an unprecedented second chance at a full life, John Engel, now 23, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for violating the terms of his probation. His father, Tom, stated that he was surprised to find out that the probation department didn't think John was still a fit for community corrections. It hurts that my son has apparently chosen a different way, I hoped he would use this unique opportunity to prove himself to be a contributing member of the community. Fresh new episodes of Murderous Minors Killer Kids are available every Monday. And join us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at KillerKidsPod. And visit ResonateRecordings.com for all your podcast production needs.